there true believers it's the wizard and the bruiser from the mighty folks at cave comedy radio um the bruiser holden mcneil i'm sorry i i, <laughs> I apologize i'm the bruiser holden mcneil <laughs> that's okay I'm the wizard. <laughs> it's just that he was doing a voice, and it's really good, and he's very committed, and then I tried it and just abort halfway through. <laughs> um, we're going to try and do something that's like probably going to be brutal, but uh, it's we're going to try and condense the life and work of Stan Lee into a single episode. Stan Lee, the man who invented the very first comic book back um, in 1824. Not, nope, he did not invent the comic book. Uh, he, uh, he, The comic book movie was first invented no, by Stan no, there Lee. There were several features from other characters. Um, Guys, Stanley is old as fuck. Yeah, I can't believe he's still rocking and rolling all these years later. I mean, he is in his 90s right now, and I'm an old... If you're listening to this, I'm probably an old man to you. Yes. I am probably a decrepit, aged adult, and uh, my entire life... I was a baby once, and I went to grade school, and I went to high school, and I went to college, and I moved to New York City, and I became... I, I grew up and I'm in my 30s now and I have a career and that entire time Stan Lee has been the very old comic book man. I had a, <laughs> I had a moment uh, uh, earlier where I was looking and I went, holy shit, Stan Lee stopped writing comic books a decade before I was born. Yeah. <laughs> holy <laughs> shit, dude. That is crazy. And, and right now the entire pop culture uber nerd machine it is unbelievable it what is, is what turning has... and at the like kind of like almost like a like a like a what's the shiny thing in front of cars um <laughs> the, mirrors bumper? Uh, no bumper. no no like the little sculpture at the front the, uh, the, the, the balls the dangling balls no those the are the truck nuts piece. The, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the merkin <laughs> i need a better metaphor the point is the hood ornament the hood ornament <laughs> stanley is at the front of this raging machine with his like adorable glasses and his like stories and his like little how do you do and it's almost impossible to wrap your head around because the number one source of information about Stan Lee is Stan Lee himself. He mm. has given countless interviews, hundreds of thousands of, of hours of him giving talks at colleges and conventions. He, in every interview, he just exclusively has an anecdote for any given situation. He talks about driving up to Buffalo with Kiss to pour blood into the red ink on the Kiss comic book series in the 80s. He talks about uh, you know, working with in his 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 part time jobs in New York City to earn like pennies so he can like working for yeah. a trouser manufacturer <laughs> was one of the many jobs uh, he had. He talks about meeting celebrities like he's he's there. He is he is a storyteller. He is an entertainer. He is a salesman, and he's 
Spider-Man's dad? It's yeah. very, and then it's too much to wrap your head it's, around. It's completely insane. And also just to think of the evolution of comics. Were, the, it, it, throughout his career, comics were cool and mm-hmm. then super not cool and then cool again and then very not cool and then worth bajillions of dollars in a giant industry that is like mm-hmm. impenetrable at this point. He's also had highs and lows where Absolutely. he has been the, you know, the revolutionary that was pushing millions of copies only to see uh, his 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 beloved Marvel comics go through horrible financial times. He was yeah, totally. the publisher and like the the Los Angeles guy at a period of time when Marvel Entertainment was approaching bankruptcy. Like it was it was too it's it's all these highs and lows and like to get to Stanley the guy that you think of now the adorable old man. It's it's a journey. So let's start. Let's, yeah, let's take it back. And- All the way back, way, way back to 1922. Guess what, dog? I share a birthday with Stanley. Aww. He was born on December 28th, 1922. That is my birthday. Eat it, losers. Also- Don't be in the same room as him. He will suck your life force <laughs> to gain another month of precious existence. Oh, dear God. Uh, and you also share that you, both of you share a birthday with my brother. Oh. The slightly handsomer Parks brother? Yeah. The much handsomer, the big one, the burly. As everybody knows, Marcus and I both have counterpart brothers that are far more handsome than we ever will be. Yeah. And that is completely, we've accepted Extremely that. Extremely athletic. Yes, yeah. very well liked when mm-hmm. we bring them around our friends. They wonder why, how they can network a switcheroo like some kind of 90s cartoon film. Um, but uh, Stanley grew up the uh, son of uh, immigrant parents. And uh, yes. his uh, father... Uh, was de- he was a garment worker, which was the style at the time for Jewish immigrants in New York City. Absolutely. And after the Great Depression, uh, his uh, his dad was would always have trouble finding work, and so they grew up poor. Uh, he uh, they kept moving uptown. That mm-hmm. was like one of the things, uh, a mark of a, of a poor family. They were moving further and further uptown until they were sharing a one bedroom mm-hmm. in the Bronx, and that's kind of like where that you know you get slopped off at the end if you if you can't sell enough pants in a year. You yeah. know, Stan and his brother Larry lived in the one bedroom, uh, slept in the one bedroom while their parents slept on a fold out couch, and uh, it's clear that this in this gave Stan a a, a sense of hustle, a sense of yeah. Of kind of a, a need for the creature comforts that he was denied growing up. By the way, born Stanley Lieber, mm-hmm. we should also mention. Um, yes, and he was definitely uh, an escapist. Um, he he was heavily influenced by the books and movies, uh, particularly Errol Flynn films. Um, he will to this day mention Errol Flynn movies as an inf- as in- as an inspiration. Uh, he he talks about stories of dashing heroes rescuing yes. damsels in distress. The Adventures of Robin Hood. The Dawn Patrol, and who could forget Captain Blood? And uh, if you're a tiny baboo, uh, it's Errol Flynn is goateed, smarmy, dashing. He's basically Tony Stark yes. and yeah. Doctor Strange. He's Bit that, of a womanizer in his yeah. real life Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, situation. Mm. Yeah, he's the type of guy like when he fights, he goes, ha ha, yeah, ho ha, hee hee. Yeah, and a lot of sword fights. Yeah, that sort. 
sort of thing. He was he he worked with a very uh, big deal trainer, and like he was well known for these like dashing, amazing sword fights up and down stairs, up and down stairs. They fought with the swords. Uh, he uh, worked a series of odd jobs trying to support his own uh, apartment. He graduated high school at age sixteen and a half. Yeah, he did it quite early. He uh, he was he had very bizarre jobs. I mean, he he always wanted to be a writer, a writer though of a different sort. He wanted to write the great American novel when he was young. Uh, and he he had uh, originally he was writing obituaries for a news service, mm-hmm. press releases for the National Tuberculosis Center. He was an usher at a theater, and of course, as I mentioned before, the office boy for a trouser manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And that can only there can only have been weird moments in those <laughs> in those uh, offices. But uh, his big break happened when he got in at uh, at Timely Comics with uh, the help of his uncle Martin Goodman. No, Robbie Solomon. Robbie Solomon. Close, Martin, though. Ro- Martin Goodman was the publisher of Timely. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, <laughs> Goodman, Solomon, Lieber. All right. We Okay. They're all different people. And, <laughs> so here's okay, okay. All right. Let's get into it. <laughs> Fucking InfoWars. <laughs> all uh, I'm saying is that it seems like there's one people that are controlling the entire comic book industry. Well, well here's the thing, though. The comic book industry was the fucking dog shit garbage pile of the entire of Western literature. I would call it a ghetto of literature. Yeah. I mean, Timely Comics was like the shit pile of the shit pile because it was because it was Pulp Fiction that was like the moneymaker and even that was just like the dregs for the unwashed illiterates, yes. which back then you could still read a full pulp novel and still be considered illiterate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and we should yeah. mention, by the way, Timely Comics will eventually be called Marvel. Uh, that, that's kind of the crazy situation here. And he got in at the gr- at the ground floor. Literally, the year he graduated from uh, high school in 1939, he was working as an assistant at Timely Comics. So, I mean, how, uh, imagine that. His very first, I mean, he had all those weird odd jobs, but, like, his very first, like, legit job in the industry, would he would continue to be working with the company. Right. Uh, for the rest of his very storied career. That's how it used to be, man. I mean, some of you'd get out of high school, you go to work for the... Some guys go to work for the Steel Factory. That's some guys went to go write comics. There you go. Well, you had that job for the rest of your life. There you go. Uh, one of his earliest... So he was, uh, you know, filling inkwells, shuffling papers, you know, just a general, like, low-level office work. But, you know, his spark for creativity went uh, noticed, and obviously he had some family connections. So one of his first writing gigs within Timely Comics was a short fill-in uh, story for the still popular Captain America, mm. a character created by uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Captain America foils the traitor's revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is film. notable because even though there's a lot of confusion, like Stanley didn't invent Captain America, he like helped Jack, you know, he worked with Jack Kirby and bringing him back for the Avengers, but he, the, the dubious claim to fame is that Stan Lee's first villain story was the canonical first time he threw his mighty shield. Threw the shield. As, as, as an offensive weapon in a ping, ping kind of way. And I'd also add this is the very first time he would use the name Stan Lee as a pseudonym as opposed to the uh, Stan Lee Lieber. He was saving his longer name mm-hmm. for his great uh, literature he planned to write. So actually, Stan Lee was his, like, cheap knockoff name that he was going to use for, you know, comic books, which he considered, you know, not as valuable as uh, uh, th- at the time as the literature that he thought he was destined to write. It's like how on. at dorkly.com, 
um, when I write a short uh, essay about uh, Overwatch's uh, gay character Tracer, mm. I say uh, this was by Jake Young, but when I make a gallery called 25 Anime Butts That'll Make You Bow Down to the Booty Gods, <laughs> that was written by Dorkly Staff. <laughs> <laughs> You got, you know, you don't want to use your real name on the trash. I, I mean, I don't understand it personally, but I, I, you know, I guess I'll just have to ride along on the train with you there, Jake. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so um, his his first superhero co-creation was uh, a character named the Destroyer, which was kind of a big time Captain America knockoff in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. He he had a super serum. He was like imprisoned by the Nazis, and he got, was given a super serum, and now he's just fighting um, against Nazis as this weird. He's got like a green mask and mm-hmm. a little skull thing. He looks like a villain, um, really. But uh, d- the Destroyer would actually go on to be used. Uh, uh, you know, in comics uh, throughout and brought back uh, uh, and whatnot. There was a revitalized series that uh, came out a few years ago with, oh, God, Marcus, I, I'm so mad that I forgot the uh, Walking Dead writer. Robert Kirkman. Robert Kirkman uh, wrote a revitalized series of that uh, a few years back. Nice. Ago. Actually, really good. Um, he uh, ended up doing more writing and more writing, and eventually, by some stroke of luck and staffing, he was uh, he was made interim editor of the comics division at age 19. Well, his uh, would would eventually become his creative partner, Jack Kirby, and um, Simon uh, left in late 1941 following a dispute with Goodman. Uh, the 30-year-old publisher uh, decided to give Lee uh, the interim editor job at 19 years old. Old. Well, again, he, you, you just said the, the big boss man at age 30 gave the 19-year-old, like, the job is editor. This true, was a true. young industry. This was a scrappy-as-fuck industry for, you know, with no respect, no legal, no, no, I'm sorry, no, no critical uh, uh, praises to be had. Oh, they no weren't ro- getting respect either. Or pussy. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, there's no roadmap for it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, see if the kid can do it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it feels a lot like reading about early Marvel timely comics feels a lot like uh, video games at the yes. time. A lot of scrappy duos, a lot of creative pairs, always like the salesman and the and the technical expert uh, working together. And um, I found a lot of parallels, actually, too, um, and we'll get to that in just a little bit, of the burgeoning video game industry in the 80s and the burgeoning comic industry in the 40s and 50s, and then when comics started to grow up later in the 60s, and then you have that happening with video games in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. In, Colden, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kiss you right in the mouth. I have in my notes that the Marvel <laughs> revolution of comics in the 60s was like video games going from 2D to 3D. Boom, 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 boom. We are crushing it, and yes, we will continue. Congratulate ourselves on our own podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> Stay humble, bros. Hashtag blessed. So, uh, yeah, he ends up becoming um, the editor. He ends up writing about... Oh, actually, he ends up going off to war around that time as well. Um, he entered the United States Army in early 1942. Uh, served- now, other other famous comic book creators uh, were also enlisted. Uh, Jack Kirby famously uh, saw fighting uh, as a young man. A lot of a lot of creators, uh, you know, were were 
touched by World War II, especially in that generation. Uh, what what did Stan Lee do during the war effort? Uh, he was uh, his his term. He was called a uh, his military classification rather was playwright. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, he claimed that he was one of only nine men that had that classification. He was writing manuals, training films, slogans, and occasionally doing some cartooning in the war. Uh, so it sounded like he was on easy street during that time, just kind of coasted through. So interesting. You're saying that Stan Lee revitalized his comics uh, company the same time he learned how to do propaganda from the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> and Because I, I didn't make that connection until right now, and holy shit, it makes sense. Yeah. Holy fucking shit. I know, right? And and we should kind of talk about a little bit of an overview of kind of what comics were, just in the sense that, you know, we've, we've touched on them before, but it's a lot of sort of perfect heroes mm. that are indestructible murdering Nazis, because that's kind of what the country needed at that time. They needed these sort of perfect American heroes that didn't have flaws, that they were just kick ass, and they would go out and just just whoop the shit out of Hitler and all of his many minions. Within a wide spectrum of stories, because also Western comics and romance comics and uh, and uh, did I say Western already? Yes, horror, horror. sci-fi. Ho- yeah, it was horror, a- oh, horror, the horrors. <laughs> <laughs> I married a mummy. Oh my god, that mummy's married to that woman. Just a bunch of fucking filthy newsies like on a porch in 1945 being like, "Willikers, the world sure would be fucked if everyone were ants." <laughs> Thanks science fiction comics of this era. <laughs> Instead of gravity, we have bacon. <laughs> So um, I believe Timely at this point was now called uh, Atlas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was only in the war for a little while. He, he got back. He had somebody stand in for him as a stand-in uh, for that time. And he just he wrote several different stories, um, uh, like we said, covering many different genres, mm-hmm. horror, uh, you know, um, sci- sci-fi, all this kind of stuff. And it was getting kind of stale. He was sort of actually at this point considering leaving the comic books industry mm-hmm. um, completely. Uh, that is until the whole comic book industry was revi- uh, revitalized in a lot of ways by The Flash, mm-hmm. actually. Um, uh, Carmine Infantino uh, revitalized what was a very staid uh, Golden Age character from the uh, 30s into a sci-fi kind of like dynamic hero. The The red suit Flash was actually a really important uh really important moment in comics development. And uh, on top of that, the uh, Justice League, or Justice Society, I think, at that time, Mm. uh, was selling really well. So the idea of a team book was also really exciting. So Martin Goodman, the publisher, went to Lee and he said, can you create a new superhero team? Now, this is a cool moment for Lee because Stan Lee is now considering leaving the comic book field. At that exact moment, Goodman approaches him and says, hey, create all new characters and do whatever the fuck you want to do. So Lee, and he was he was heavily urged by his wonderful, loving wife, um, Joan. Joan. Oh, wait. Okay. Uh, I didn't know we'd get into this quickly, but uh, Joan was an actress and fashion model mm. in New York City and Stan Stan Lee was a charming uh, publishing uh, uh, pulp worker, and you know they were from two different worlds. But he had the pizzazz, he had the charm, and according to an interview I, I uh, watched on YouTube uh, do- in a documentary, Joan said that uh, Stan Lee walked. Uh, they were at a social event. Stan Lee walked right up to her and said, "Oh no, I think I've fallen in love with you." <laughs> uh, oh no, I think I've fallen in love with you. Take the wizard's hat off, and we can talk. Uh, also, super key. Uh, just, I'd really, guys, just like quiet down. Just, uh, sl- just you know, just take a deep I mean, breath. I was being uh, quiet, but yeah. Joan Lee's uh, maiden name was 
Joan Clayton Bucock. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Good times. I guess they didn't know so about that. So she was really eager to become Joan Lieber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is that where Stanley got the idea for the web slinging? <laughs> <laughs> good times, good times. Uh, yeah, so she urged him to come up with, um, you know, to, to really push the boundaries. And, hey, he's got nothing to lose. Let's try something new. Let's just completely go for it. And that completely go for it was him essentially redefining uh, what comic books were at the time. And he started that off by creating the Fantastic Four. Now, we're going to get into the Marvel era of comics. Yes. And the Marvel era of comics is defined by Stan Lee because he was almost like a DJ for a comic book universe. He was the head of the pyramid. Everything that got put out ran by him. Every plot was at least discussed with him. And oh, uh, the DJ, like uh, the musician type, not like um, DJ Tanner from Full House. <laughs> never. Okay. never. I, I thought that I was what you were going for. anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. Head of the pyramid. I apologize for the interruption. I, uh, and, there's good, and there's some controversy here because, for example, Stan Lee created the Fantastic Four, but all those characters and several key plot points were kind of just taken note for note from Jack Kirby's uh, original series challenges of the unknown including the team of scientist explorers uh the idea of going into a spaceship and gaining powers um the idea a lot of people argue that when you see early uh fantastic four comics there's a lot of weird moments that don't make any sense like the pictures and the words don't make any don't match uh, a lot of the things like uh, invisible woman sue richards uh sue storm whatever uh being uh, really like effeminate and helpless and like deferring to men always is like don't like they're only in thought balloons like if you mm. if you see the pictures it's just a woman fighting crime but then the thought balloon is always like thank god the master of jujitsu reed richards taught me to how to defend myself <laughs> and uh jack kirby in his later years heavily disputed how much stanley actually inputted the how, how much input he actually had in different stories mm. But Stan Lee was Marvel Comics. Excelsior, shown, sure enough, like the tone, the formatting, the letters page, the mighty Marvel marching, the Merry Marvel Marching Society, the letter, like it's, it all had his voice. And unlike other comics publishers that were just a random mishmash of bullshit, when you picked up a Marvel comic, it, the tone was established. And that was, this, uh, that was uh, really uh, very specifically planned by him. And I think that it's kind of infused in, we, and we can even start with just kind of what, in general, the choice was he wanted his heroes to have flaws. He wanted Feet them, of clay. Yes, feet of clay under underneath their um, uh, costumes. Uh he wanted, uh, and, and I'll read that quote actually. For just this once, I would do the type of story I myself would enjoy reading, and the characters would be the kind of characters I could personally relate to. They'd be flesh and blood, they'd have their faults and foibles, they'd be fallible and feisty, and most important of all, inside their colorful costume bodies, uh, booties, they'd still have feet of clay. He wanted flawed heroes that dealt with normal everyday problems, that dealt with anger management, that dealt with paying bills, that dealt with girl problems, and stuff like that. And on top of that, when he was putting these comic books out like you just said with the the letters page and things like that he tried um to really instill in the idea that these comic book writers and artists were your friend 
mm-hmm. not just you know some kind of unknown sort of being that was just putting all this stuff out on the newsstands, but, but like a weirdo old alcoholic like Wally Wood or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was like, hey, this is you know uh, that's why he would do. Now the- it was the work of a bunch of weird old alcoholics like <laughs> Wally Wood, yeah. which is why it pissed them off that this flimflam artist in the sunglasses was getting all the goddamn credit. <laughs> I, he was literally he was the first person. You think Stan Lee knew how to draw knockers that big? <laughs> that was Wally Wood. <laughs> he was he was really the first person to put everybody's name who worked on the comic book on a splash page up in the front. At the very end, what was the name of his uh, bulletin or whatever at the end? He would Stan t- Soapbox. Stan Soapbox, right? He would go bullpen bulletin, as bullpen well. bulletin as well, and he w- it would it would have news about the writers and about mm-hmm. the storylines that they were planning. And uh, what he really prided himself in is that when people wrote in to them, they would write Dear Spike instead of Dear, um, or Stan rather, instead of Dear Editor. Mm-hmm. And that was like a huge thing for him. That was such a big deal to be referred to by his first name, to have that kind of relationship with his fans, which honestly paved the way for the kind of fandom that we have today at Comic-Cons mm-hmm. and, and online and everything. He was one of the big trailblazers of that sort of relationship with the mm-hmm. fan base in that way. In, uh, in interviews, he talks about how he would visit comic book shops and see that they were holding conventions, and he realized just how vibrant this audience was and how much... Forging that connection was important as a publisher. Um, he uh, now this is again. I we don't want to you know because this is the Stan Lee story as Stan Lee tells yeah, it. Yeah, that's the thing. Jack Kirby tells it. Um, yeah, um, uh, very differently. <laughs> Stan Lee has always been the company man. He yeah. is always like while other artists uh, were struggling with big publishers for their rights. While other uh, artists were trying to get their, not even just the rights to the characters, just the physical pages they labored over back so they could sell it for a few hundred bucks. Uh, Stanley always expressed empathy, but never like made any like lateral moves because uh, there's an amazing slideshow uh, in the, on the New York Times website you can look up called Sketching His Past, where it's all the places Stanley lived. And in his past, there's just rundown tenement apartments. And then you can see, like, oh, he has a nice house in Long Island and a beautiful wife. And, oh, now he's in a bigger house and with a ni- with a baby. And, like, Marvel took care of him. Yeah. Like, you know, he got the fame. He got a comfortable standard of living. And he was willing to be a company man. Mm. But guys like Steve Ditko ended up in that same tenement apartment that mm. Stan Lee started off in. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. 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 And Steve Ditko, some could argue... Really created Spider-Man. Oh huh. no, uh, so that's that's the crux of it. Is to say to treat Stan Lee like he was just this infinite font of ideas. You know, people say that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays, but people like the idea of this unitary, like star beacon of creative. And uh, Steve Jobs didn't create the iPhone. Yeah. Right. But would the iPhone exist without Steve Jobs? It's kind of a chicken egg. And if you had put the real person behind the iPhone in front of a panel of people, they would vomit immediately. I'm sure the guy has, like, cum hands and, like, an upside-down nose and, you know, all sorts of stuff. You got to have the masthead. Using the arm architecture processors, we have reduced the rattery load. I made Thor. I made Thor. He got a big hammer. Susie, will you go to the dance with me? It's like we are no longer in high school. My name's Walt. (laughs) 
adults. We are no longer in high school. There's no dances anymore. We can go to the bar if you want. Uh, just give me the artwork for Thor. My name's just... Walt! <laughs> uh, we, again, there's... And so, like, we have to temper all this praise with all this criticism, but then there's, all, like, uh, the idea of teenagers being the hero and not the sidekick. Uh, you can trace that back to some of uh, Stanley's earlier pre- uh, Marvel creations, um, the idea of uh, of Eastern mysticism. There's a, a character called Doctor Droom that Stanley <laughs> invented. That was basically a uh, Fu Manchu, yellow, creepy, racist Asian uh, <laughs> Doctor Strange. But ah. the idea. He was a white guy that turned into an Asian when he used his magic powers. It was not a very profitable idea. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of that stuff was, you know, kind of came, but like he definitely stood on the shoulders of giants because, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of a kid as the hero, you know, that was, you know, Doc- Captain Marvel with like Fawcett mm-hmm. Comics, uh, as far as like the Eastern mysticism, like Dr. Fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he definitely, he knew how to go in and pick out the gr- best ideas. Why are they all doctors? They're all doctors. Who's giving them PhDs? <laughs> and, but let's, let's we should mention all the all the many things at least that have been claimed to have been invented mm. by him. We've got Hulk, we've got Thor, we've got Iron Man, we've got X Men. That was all with Jack Kirby. <laughs> then we also have um, uh, what else? Uh, Spider Man, Steve Ditko. Spider Man would be the big one. Yeah, Spider Man, Doctor Strange, uh, also with Steve Ditko, um, and of course you know which led to the Avengers. Uh, so yeah, it's like a giant, insane. You know, I mean these are all again billion dollar properties at this point um each in their own right which yeah. is uh r- ridiculous it's you know? it's biz- like knowing that these characters will outlive me yeah <laughs> is terrifying it's like you know uh, it's it's like it's like homer not the simpson the the epic poet is just walking around doing conventions and you can just like <laughs> shake his hand and be like oh hi he's like how you doing? <laughs> I always remember him from Mallrats. Yeah. Inter- like, oh, interesting story with. The, oh, okay. No, 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 no. I was just gonna say, just that scene where he just runs into him in Mallrats, mm-hmm. and and even back then, when when the the comics weren't as popular as they are now, it was still just like, wow, he's just a normal guy, and he just created all these like incredibly well known things. But you were gonna say about that? Uh, this I was listening to a uh, panel convention. Uh, convention guys i've been real hopped up on coffee all day <laughs> and i'm crashing hard <laughs> uh, some, i have some cocaine you want some of this cocaine cocaine yeah cocaine me gusta la cocaine yep. um, from the leaf <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how cocaine is made okay guys cool. we gotta do a coke cast <laughs> yeah we'll do the history of cocaine next patreon week. supporters get exclusive access to the coke cast. <laughs> okay we'll send you a vial of cocaine if with you such classic episodes the as the bugs and <laughs> knives 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 yeah <laughs> Welcome back to Nug Talk. Walter McNeely and Jay Young. What you were going to say oh. about uh, maybe Mall so Rats Kevin or something? Smith uh, talking to uh, Stanley at uh, at New York Comic Con. Uh, they revealed that uh, Stanley's famous talk about how there was a, a woman he once loved and she uh, got away, and that's when the the anger that he felt at uh, letting her go was the inspiration for the Hulk, and the heartbreak and rejection he felt was the inspiration for Spider Man, mm. and. Uh, Stanley uh, had issues with the script because he has been married to Joan Lee for years. Uh, they're still together. You could uh, see them uh, in a cameo in X Men Apocalypse together. Mm. Um, and he didn't want, you know, he thought it would hurt his beloved wife's feelings. Oh. Uh, and but then he said he took pity on Kevin Smith 
because his last film had been in black and white, and he figured he could use the Stanley bump. So he said okay to the to the speech. <laughs> awesome. Aw, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it kind of ushered in th- that it is referred to as the silver age of comic books, right? Mm-hmm. The golden age, of course, was uh, the one we were just in. Uh, yeah, Superman that. and mm-hmm. uh, and early Batman. And then the silver age was heavily led by uh, Stanley as the masthead of it in a lot of ways. Well, so like silver age Superman was all these like backwards ass, you know, asshole Superman. Uh, you see those covers on the internet all the time where Superman it's like Superman is a dick. Yeah, it's super like, dickery. Yeah, while Spider Man was having trouble with Gwen Stacy like Superman was turning into a gorilla yeah. like on a bi-monthly basis silly Lois you can't drink water because I am the king of the earth now <laughs> meanwhile Spider-Man's like fuck I can't afford my aunt's medicine <laughs> shit, the, shit. And then back to super and then back to Lois Lane Superman you can't let me marry the executioner and <laughs> Superman having his feet up on a pew going sorry yeah. <laughs> Batman's being like oh no the rain Rainbow Master is back in town, and I'm a dinosaur? <laughs> I sure are pulling a lot of boners here. <laughs> Meanwhile, the thing is like, I'm unlovable. Yeah. Who could touch a monster such as I? <laughs> um, also, during this time, they sort of perfected the Marvel method, which I found to be really interesting. The collaboration between artist mm. and writer went as such. There would be a brainstorm with the artist and the writer, and then the writer would prepare a brief synopsis for the artist, and then the artist Artists would actually, without an actual script, draw out the panels, draw out all the illustrations, and then the uh, the uh, using that synopsis, and then the writer would go in and fill in all the word balloons and stuff, which also might be another reason why some of those panels didn't make any sense yeah. in Fantastic Four a little bit, because that sounds like a nuts way to work. I couldn't imagine, like, doing that. Like, sending... I mean, it makes sense for how you could get quick, snappy product, mm-hmm. but at the same time, just, like, here's all the pictures, just throw the dialogue in there. Is it sounds like a little crazy to me. Uh, well, Jack Kirby got to start doing uh, animation work for the Fleischer Brothers, so he understood the idea of visual storytelling from action to action action so his stuff usually like flowed the best and then stan just had to like write in like you know like you palookas are about to get a clobbering (laughs) which to be fair is poetry of the highest order i mean i just got i I just got like a heart palpitation just even saying that (laughs) um so yeah, so we've got uh, we've got the success of the Amazing Spider-Man, mm-hmm. um, where where we had a lot of uh, you know w- with uh, the collaboration um, with John Romita Sr. Uh, in 1966, they started focusing almost more on the uh, the college lives of the characters as opposed to even the superhero side, dealing with the Vietnam War, things like that, um, the elections and activism. They also had uh, Robbie Robertson as the first African-American character in the comics to play a serious supporting role. And also in uh, Stan's uh, soapbox, he's talking about um, equality. He's talking, you know, he's getting, he's, he's really speaking towards, um, you know, the civil rights movement and things like that, um, which is kind of a huge deal at that time. And then comes uh, Jack, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's potentially uh, what some say is their finest achievement, the Galactus Trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, which started with uh, Fantastic Four number Supposedly, 48. Uh, Supposedly, this, this trilogy started with just Stan Lee uh, during the story meeting just telling Jack Kirby being like, 
I don't know. How about the Fantastic Four fights God? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially, uh, Curry said, "For my uh, my inspirations were the fact that I had to make sales, and I had to come up with characters that were no longer stereotypes. I had to get something new, and for some reason, I went to the Bible, and I came up with Galactus. And there I was in front of this tremendous figure who I knew very well because I always felt him, and I certainly couldn't treat him the same way that I would any ordinary mortal. And of course, the Silver Surfers, the Fallen Angel, they were." Fig- Figures that have never been used before in comics. They were above mythic figures, and of course, they were the first gods. And note how, too, he doesn't really mention Stanley giving, uh, telling him the idea for Galactus. In fact, they each just every time they describe how a character was come up with, they each say I, and then proceed to tell how they came up with the character for almost every single character. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I never believe Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley says Galactus was simply another in a long line of. Supervillains whom we loved creating, having dreamed up many powerful baddies. We felt the only way to top ourselves was to come up with an evildoer who had almost godlike powers. Therefore, the natural choice was sort of a demigod. But now, what uh, What would we do with him? We didn't want to use the tired old cliche about uh, him wanting to conquer the world. That was when inspiration struck. Why not have him not be a really evil person? After all, a demigod would be beyond mere good and evil. What he'd require is the life force and energy from living planets. Mm. Yeah. Now, is that more believable or do you believe I gotta pay the rent? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So this, so the Marvel boom, the Marvel explosion. Uh, now a successful comic book, like a hit comic oh, yeah. book, like The Walking Dead, will sell maybe a hundred thousand copies. Mm. Um, during the peak of like the uh, '90s boom, like maybe a million copies. Mm. Fantastic Four, Spider Man, The Avengers. These books were Marvel was selling. 13 million comic books a month. Wow. This was a smash sensation. This, again, compared to, uh, uh, we were just talking about the video game The video game thing, and that's so we can bring it back in here, yeah. We'll sell 6 to 10 million copies. Overwatch has like 30 million uh, players right now, uh, and that's like one of the more more dominant ones. But it's that level of, it's that, that's the audience of, Young people, like people eager for adventure, eager for escapism. But also what was happening was the the readers and, you know, and I really drew that parallel as well to the the gaming industry was all of a sudden their readers were no longer like little kids. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden their fans of the comic books were starting to grow up and they had a lot much larger base to work with. So they started doing uh, stories that were more relatable towards an older audience, which really helped to span so much more of a base, just like with video games, when you saw video games mature from Sonic the Hedgehog to like Mortal Kombat to you know Call of Duty you sort of like have you see the aging progression from from Mario to GTA you know yeah. and 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 that all happened uh just like gaming but way back you know around in the time of the 60s as opposed to the 90s and 2000s I think uh to get into individual character storylines might uh you know why why uh why waste material that we should be like we should just do a Fantastic Four episode yeah for sure we should just do a Spider-Man episode absolutely uh, but as the 60s wound down uh, Stanley's workload grew and his uh, commitment uh, to speaking at conventions and colleges because that's what he was he was the public front of Marvel Comics yes uh, grew a little bit too much and so as publisher he was he was uh, elevated from editor-in-chief to publisher and took on more of a business role and uh, that eventually sent him to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, 
where he started uh, wheeling and dealing for Marvel Entertainment. Yes. And that's where, like, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, he's like, hello there, true believers. This is another terrifying story of Firestar. And, like, um, he, his media presence is, uh, is, is heightened even more than before. He is omnipresent. And this is... You can't deny his as a as a as a as a former comic, as a as a as a person who talks in front of microphones. Stanley is a great public person. He is amazing to listen to. He is entertaining. He like skirts this line between like a fanciful creator and cynical businessman in a very funny way. And uh, he like he he was the guy. He was he was the face of Marvel. If you 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 could not turn on a TV and hear news without Stanley being there being interviewed. But I feel like once too he gets to Hollywood, th- this is when we get to some sort of weirder, darker times for him a little bit. I think mm. in terms of his creative output during that time, you've got the whole Stanley Media fiasco. Ooh, that's like, oh, we're going to get to Stanley Media. <laughs> we have to end on like Stanley Media to POW Entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> is um, barbed wire involved in any of that? Oh, uh, uh, Stripperella. <laughs> Stripperella. <laughs> okay, 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 so so in the 90s, comic books got big. Yes. Uh, and by big, he means like the muscles and the breasts got gigantic. <laughs> shoulder pads. I'm mostly talking shoulder pads. They got she-hulked. Yeah. <laughs> Toy sales are big. Uh, trading cards, pogs, stickers, you name it. A little Holden McNeely started collecting a, a little-known uh, comic called Spawn. Um, <laughs> animated TV shows, like a lot of material from that era, is really leaning hard to like upcoming movies and TV shows that – uh, some worked out well, like the X Men animated series. Some so didn't, like Jim Cameron's never existed Spider Man movie. Um, but the uh, but why, why didn't you start calling him Jim Cameron? Because I've been listening of, to a lot of showbiz of interviews with Stan Lee, and he keeps calling him Jim Cameron because he's a smooth fucking operator. Is exactly why that he's happened. trying to emulate dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. Call him Jim Cameron, and he'll give you a big, big shot in the movie business. But uh, Marvel overextended itself and uh, was very close to bankruptcy mm. by the by the nineties. Um, if uh, it's all those holograms they kept putting on the cover of their comics, that cost too much to print. Uh, there's a there's a clip on. Um, I don't know if we can. We we might have to cut this down, but there's a clip on the YouTube channel for H Bomber Guy called like Stan Lee Kicks Ass or like Stan Lee is the Man, and it's this footage. Uh, it's literally Stan Lee interviewing Rob Liefeld and um and Spawn Guy, Todd, Todd, Todd McFarlane, yeah, and they're creating a new character in real time, and the whole video Stan Lee is shitting all over the state of modern comics in front of two of its biggest rock stars right to their fucking face and it's amazing <laughs> but why don't we give them here wires coming out here coming oh, down up they the love kids, that the kids stuff. love wires the wires oh, that he'll trip over good wires oh um. Does he have a double identity? Is he really no. a Mika? Oh. And by the way, they're designing uh, Overt Kill from Spawn. Who else could he be besides Overkill? Well, I mean, what if, when he takes off all these clothes, is he a 97-pound Do you see him taking rough fist? Okay. Okay. His thumb. He would have three different cannons different that are okay. facing you for the large kapui. So right here. They could be like missile launchers or whatever. 
but he's gonna have those right over here. What makes you make those team. value judgments? Why only three? He's got four knuckles. Because the reader's crazy. Why does he have more on that side than that side? No, no. For the sake of our unseen viewers, mm -hmm. is this really the type of thought process that you guys go through with yes. create characters? Except, except for we have more than 20 minutes. <laughs> this is probably longer than you usually do. Well, I think I, I've got to Stanley fucking just shitting on Rob Life. Oh, oh man. Stanley owns. That's the name of the video. Yeah, you got. Right. It's so worth it. It's so great. So yeah, uh, uh, in the '90s, he creates uh, Stanley Media, an internet-based superhero studio. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, near the end of 2000, investigators discovered there was stock manipulation going on. Uh, by, his, uh, oh yeah, his partner uh, was uh, found to be dealt uh, dealing drugs. Yeah, doing drug deals. He uh, fled the country <laughs> to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, the rights, like the stock plant, he made bank on this corporation. It was the dot-com boom. They made all these like fast and quick deals with Universal Studios to like develop all these characters into like amusement park rides. Meanwhile, the actual product they were making, I remember these when I was a kid because I loved flash animations because I was a fucking loser. Um, <laughs> was like shitty flash animated superhero cartoons with like characters like the accuser who was a uh, lawyer in a wheelchair whose wheelchair turned into power armor <laughs> so he could like get his clients uh, uh find evidence to protect his clients by cover of night <laughs> but these were shitty characters these were shitty animations and like even despite all the hype despite all the media they were burning money they like attracted so much investment the whole thing crashed and burned yeah it just sounds like to me that he essentially just got a too much money to know what to do with from all of uh, his success with the Silver Age of comic books. Went out to Hollywood to try to like do something, get break mm. into TV and film, which honestly was the right thing eventually for Marvel and everything, mm -hmm. obviously, as we would come to find out. But it was just a couple decades, a little too early for it. The world wasn't ready for it. And um, he just sort of would, you know, needed to throw his money at a bunch of different things, and, and it all kind of went belly up for him for a little while. After, would, you know? He also signed a little contract that maybe said that Stanley Media owns all Stan Lee characters, yeah. present and future, Yeah, which has resulted in... And Stanley Media suing Stan Lee. <laughs> Yeah, that was fucking bonkers. Uh, I mean, whatever shell of whatever crooked asshole actually owns Stanley Media just is, they can't like even find a person who actually is the owner. But Stanley Media is just suing Disney, suing Marvel, suing Stanley, <laughs> suing uh, his subsequent company, POW oh Entertainment. Which uh, has been more successful and has been more responsible for like the Stanley as nerd grandpa. Well, they created Stripperella yeah. for uh, Spike TV, starring Pamela Anderson, which resulted in another lawsuit <laughs> <laughs> because a uh, a Florida-based stripper named Janet Jazz Clover oh, yeah. claimed the rights to the name Stripperella. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, Jazz Clover? Jazz Clover. Oh, is that one word or uh, hyphenated? Uh, quotes. And that, Stan the Man Lee sued by Janet Jazz Clover <laughs> over the name Stripperella. Uh, also, there was Hef Super Bunnies. Uh, there was like a lot. Like this went through a weird horny time. Yeah. It sounds like a horny old man phase out in Hollywood. He's you know? always working on like various original characters and musicals and novels. Like he's always pitching. He's always selling. He he can get a meeting anywhere in Hollywood because he's 
fucking Stan Lee. Man, I really, what I really wished was that the superhero program that would feature Ringo Starr as the lead <laughs> had gotten uh, fully finished and in the can because I that would have been something special, guys. Yeah, yeah he's <laughs> there's always a press release. He's always he's always he's always moving. He's always selling. He's always like he's always. Sh- He's, he's, I don't want to say a con man because he's a salesman. Yeah, I, I mean, mean he's, you know, he, he got some stuff over, so it's not yeah. like he's conning people necessarily. Yeah. And he had a TV show for four years. Yeah. Like Stanley's Superhumans. That was yeah. on from 2010 to 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so he's he's been he, you know he was doing it, and now he just gets to do a cameo in every single Marvel movie and collect um, <laughs> what must be um, just a a uh, uh, I would say a, you could legally call it a stupid amount of money. I would call it fuck you money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, but like he's getting older. He's like he doesn't do conventions anymore mm. or very limited. Yeah, uh, at one point he had to cancel a bunch of convention dates to get a pacemaker put in him. I mean, he's getting up there. You uh, know? In the interview, in the later interviews I heard, like he constantly complained about not being able to hear the questions on mm. stage. Uh, they even filmed a bunch of cameos ahead of time because nobody knows if he'll make it to Infinity War. Uh, he's listed as having already shot the cameos for Guardians of the Galaxy uh, Part 2, Infinity War, mm. Spider-Man Homecoming, like way before like the actual filming had been done. So uh, that's the legacy of Stan Lee. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible, you know. I mean, and definitely we'll, we'll never truly know what exactly happened in those offices and who came up with exactly what. And I think we could do a whole other episode on Jack Kirby and, you know, uh, yeah, and, and any should. one of these superheroes. It'll be a lot darker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, but it's still it's a pretty amazing tale. Um, I think if you are interested in a sort of fictional take on the whole history of, of all of this stuff, I really loved uh, Michael Chabon's uh, Cavalier and Clay. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Such a good uh, novel. Um, one of those kind of uh, historical fiction works. Um, they sort of recaps all the, all those uh, those gold and silver age of comic books. I think I think Stan Lee's relationship to comics and and nerd culture is kind of like the relationship one has with a parent. You can love them, you can appreciate them, but don't mistake that there's some kind of perfect being because nobody's perfect. That's the thing. He's just fantastic at at uh, putting on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm think you know, I'm I'm pretty solid. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like if you're to like be like, oh, is he perfect? Is he not? If you're thinking at home, like, oh, I, oh, I bet Holden's perfect. I'm guessing like a very attractive woman saying this right. to herself right now. Then came the dark. Dark times for Holden McNeely when he started stealing bubble gum from the local convenience store to give himself a weird stiffy. <laughs> um, look, I didn't accidentally spend a hundred dollars at a bar last night. All right, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, I don't know. Thank you so much for for uh, listening to yet another episode. Uh, uh, we love uh, j- you know join the Facebook page. We love we love it on there. It's so much fun. Uh, write and review. Uh, uh, our podcast um, on I iTunes. Cannot stress this enough. We know there's more of you out there than have been leaving reviews. Those help us get up on iTunes, and those get us in front of eyeballs. And it's it's such an inconsequential thing. You can do it from your phone if you're listening right now, and it helps us so much. It's like, like the hugest thing you can do for us, besides just like finding out what our address is and just straight up sending us money. But um, I doubt you're going <laughs> to do that. That's very hard. That Don't would be cool. That. If you do want to figure out my address and send me money, you know, I'll, I'll just say go for it. What's that, <laughs> Satan? Kill Holden. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, but anyways, uh, regardless, uh, just your listening and in, in, in itself is, is wonderful uh, support for the show. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, any any last words? Uh, check out the Facebook group. A lot of fun conversation there. It's one of my favorite places to go online right now. Just a lot of sincere nerds sharing the things they love. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. At Holdenators Ho on Twitter and on Twitch. Uh, check me out every Monday night with my girlfriend for Lexi Loves Game Night, 9 to 11 p.m. Oh, on the Cave Comedy Network, uh, uh, Page 7 has been kicking ass lately. Yeah, Page oh, 7. Really loving yeah. Page 7. Let's Thank you very much. Let's throw some love out to Page 7. Let's let's start plugging other podcasts this thing, on this show. You know what you should check out? Last podcast on the left. <laughs> I heard that's a fucking banger. I do. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. <laughs> well, anyways, thank you so much, guys. Take care. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.